I was just gonna say this is the type of movie given like on paper and its history that I want to be like I want to be able to say like actually it's pretty good or actually like it's crazy that Dan Aykroyd was allowed to do this and like or actually like it's amazing what he accomplished like that he made something so crazy in the studio system but it's really just actually it makes sense that that he only made one movie (laughs) like it's 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 impossible to find redeeming qualities in, in this movie. I I don't know uh, what it's like to be on Angel Dust, but I think <laughs> I but I think I do now. Chase. Hey, you just passed the Garden State Parkway South. Don't worry, I'll get you there. Demi Moore. Oh, no, cop. Driver, step outside the car, please. John Candy. Read him. Yeah, that's nice, thanks. The lower back, please. I got an itch right up in there. It's good, thank you. Not today, sir. This may be Valkenvania, but it is still America. Wouldn't mind, would you just write a ticket here, or we could settle it some other way, perhaps? That's not the way things work around here. What is this place? Revolving district court for the village and shire of Balkanvania is now in order. The Honorable Reeve, Alvin Balkanizer, presides. Dan Aykroyd. Put out that dog rocket! Nothing but trouble. So sorry. Welcome to uh, 30 Years Later. I'm your host, Ricky Camilleri, uh, with Chris Chafin, your other host of 30 Years Later. Today, we are talking about um, a movie written, directed, uh, and starring in two roles, uh, Mr. Uh, Dan Aykroyd. Um, it's called Nothing But Trouble. It also stars Chevy Chase, um, RIP. I believe he is passed away at this point. And um, Demi Moore. And we are joined by uh, the fantastic Evan Davis. Evan, thanks so much for being here. Hello. Ricky, you are my last true internet friend. <laughs> how did, how did, we were introduced, we should say, um, by by Megan, who told us that we would be fr- we should be friends and we should DM, and, and that was at the beginning of the pandemic, I think, and we started just DMing about Paul Verhoeven, I believe. That that is exactly right, and you know, as, as time goes on, you usually end up meeting your internet friends in real life, but um, we can't do that right now, so this is the best is we true. have. Staring at a ZenCaster recording, talking about this insane piece of cultural artifactory. Is that, yeah. is that a word? Um, no, it's not a word. Cultural ephemera, cultural yeah. artifact, yeah, artifactory. Ephemera is correct. Yeah, no yeah. one remembers this movie. Um, I I want to say I I honestly want to say rightly so when it comes to no one remembering this movie. But the one I I will say the one redeeming quality about it is it is such a spectacular failure on so many levels that it almost <laughs> merits remembrance for that reason alone. So in that respect, I'm glad. We're doing this podcast. And also, it is Tupac Shakur's first appearance on camera. So, like, that is another truly reason wild. why. Truly wild. Yeah. He's such, Which, he looks like he looks like such a bit. He's like 19 years old. He's such a little thing. 
He's a baby. He's a baby. And I have to say, you know, if your first appearance in life is going to be in this in the movie Nothing But Trouble, it doesn't bode well for the rest of your life, unfortunately. It was a, it was a bad foreshadowing <laughs> for the poor man. Um, Evan, uh, so you have... Wh- what do you remember about this movie growing up? Well, this is the thing. I... I'm uh, I'm, a, I'm maybe a little bit younger than you guys, but certainly any movie that came out from like the late 80s through like the mid 90s, I can picture the VHS box cover in my head so clearly, every single one. doesn't matter if I've seen the movie or not, I know those VHS box covers because that's all I did as a kid was like wander around video stores and stare at the VHSs. And this is one of those can things. I, I mean, hard same, hard same. Yeah. Yeah, hard same, 100%. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Latchkey kid who mostly went out to sit on the floor of the video store and get yelled at while he decided, for like taking too long deciding what movies he was going to (laughs) write. They used to sell the old movie posters at the video store closest to my house. And I would, they just had them rolled up in a, in a kind of a barrel or something. And I would, they were all like a dollar. I, they just expected you to come up and just take it because it just was written on the side what movie it was. But I would go up and I would unroll every single one and like look at it for like a long time and then very carefully roll it back up and then move on to the next one. <laughs> I'd be there for like an hour. It's, it's, you know? it's amazing. Sure it's amazing me. any of us had friends. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I definitely was the kid who had friends that had to like my friends had to tell me, no, we don't want to watch another movie. Like, right. That's those were all <laughs> right. it was like, Ricky, no, we're not going to watch another movie. And that is still definitely a, an, an element of my life where it's like, right. you know, being an adult on a vacation somewhere and me being kind of like, hey, everybody, it's three o'clock. Do you want to watch a movie? <laughs> People <would be> like, <laughs> we're going to like go for a hike or yeah. something. Is that <laughs> like, really going to go for a hike? There's all these 70s Charles Bronson movies on Prime. We can watch at least one of them. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I mean that this was uh this was one of those and I ne- I never knew what it was about. I knew that Dan Aykroyd had weird makeup on it and and uh Chevy Chase was in the thing and then I think like maybe 6 months ago I was in the I was wrapping up a sexual escapade and the woman was like how oh how God. best to oh relax uh in this moment. Oh, why don't we watch this movie I loved as a kid called Nothing But Trouble. And I was like Okay. And, you know, it it explains a lot about um, our sexual compatibility that she thought that this would be a good, like, post-coital activity. Uh, Yeah, that's super fucked up. (laughs) What does it explain, Evan? I, I mean, I feel I feel like it, it the 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 analysis writes itself. I don't feel like I need to add anything. Like, <laughs> are you saying are you saying this? Wait, was this girl wearing a large amount of disgusting prosthetic makeup the entire what time? I, what was I'm that... saying is she was John Candy. What you're saying is that you were wrapping up your sexual escapade. She threw the movie on. Dan Aykroyd showed up as the big baby in the last act, and you were like, "I'm ready to go oh again." <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> and uh, and and we're getting married next week. <laughs> yeah, with, with yeah um i will say my my first memory of this movie is i believe i saw it when it when i was like six when it came out i don't remember yeah. it at all for i don't remember seeing it at all at that time but what i do remember is that when i was in high school my other movie nerd buddies definitely had a more clear memory of this movie because they would always reference it as the most disgusting thing they'd ever seen and they'd right. always kind of be like, it'd always be this point of reference, like, ugh, like nothing but trouble. 
Like they would refer to someone they thought was kind of ugly or something as like, she looks like Dan Aykroyd and nothing but trouble. Ugh. Oh like, God, oh. what a, what a <laughs> savage insult. Yes, it was a really savage insult. Like I remember specifically, like it was like about the babies at the end that they would they would use as a a go to. But it was always something that, and what was so interesting is that we'd all seen like John Waters movies and stuff. But this, and I agree, still stuck out as like the most disgusting thing uh, they had ever they had ever seen. And we were always fishing for the bottom of the barrel and, and grotesque, you know, like fifteen year old video store boys do. Right, and and I think that. You, we were talking about this off air, like on the on the surface, this movie should rule. This movie yes. should be amazing because it is so balls to the wall insane. I think if you adjust uh, for inflation, its budget would come out to about ninety million dollars today. <laughs> so if you crazy. spent ninety million dollars on a movie about a bunch of people who are kidnapped by a hundred and six year old demon judge who wants to uh murder them and make them into sausage with those kinds of sets with this kind of cast you're like yeah money in the bank blockbuster sign me up no i mean i would i mean the sets it's interesting that you talk about the sets i mean right so like we're saying it's a 40 million dollar movie it's directed by dan awkward ricky i think you told me because no one else would direct it is that yeah it was his first he I mean, very briefly, I don't want to cut you off, Chris. Can I just give the brief sort of summary? Of no, yeah, no, please do. Yeah. He and a, he and a couple of friends went to see Hellraiser, um, which is, yeah. you know, bona fide classic. And like, they heard people laughing in the theater and thought, wow, a, a, a funny horror movie would be a, is a great idea. What they didn't realize in that moment is that like when people laugh in horror movies, and or horror movies are funny, the movies aren't necessarily trying to be funny at the same time, or at least on the face of it, they're not telling jokes. Like the two It's just sort of a release yeah. of the tension of the horror movie that you laugh during it, but the horror movie is not funny necessarily. Yeah. Or the horror I mean, not movie, a good or horror the horror movie. movie is so bad it's funny, right? Like because the, just right, the two yeah. genres on the face of it, as if they're if they're both being done well, are not really gonna play together nicely, right? And and so he comes up with this idea. He writes the script alone with his brother, actually. He writes the script with his brother and he brings it around. He brings it to John Landis, who says, fuck no. Um, probably for more reasons than just not liking the script. He brings it to somebody else as well who says no. John Hughes. John Hughes, right. John, John Hughes. Hughes no, because, really? And John Hughes's excuse was, I only direct things I write, but I feel like it was oh, right. like, That's so no, <laughs> that's so fucked up. And I, I, yeah, I read that too. I was like, yeah, sure, that was the reason John Hughes. So then, so then he gets Chevy Chase and Demi Moore and John Candy on board. John Candy because he said he had a dream or just a vision of John Candy in drag and fell out of his chair laughing. He thought it was so funny, which is just like, oh my that god, is, like. That tells you what you're in for with this movie. Like the if the idea of John Candy wearing makeup is like the most hilarious thing you've ever heard of. Yeah. Then like yeah, yeah. you might enjoy this movie, but otherwise, I just thought John Candy in drag looked like I fine. Basically, I didn't think it was hilarious or anything to see him wearing a dress and makeup. No, it's like, like everything in this movie where it's like Dan Aykroyd with a penis as for a nose is fine. It's not fun. Like how is that not funny or it's like, not really that funny. It's you're just sort of like okay, he's a dick for a nose. All right. Um, so then <laughs> I told Catherine we were watching it, and she was like, "No, he doesn't really, does he?" And I was like, "Yeah, no, it is the dick." And she was like, 
Why? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so then Dan Aykroyd gets it to Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers somehow fucking green lights this movie, gives him $40 million as a debut director with what I think is an unfinished script and parts uncast, um, which honestly, that's not unheard of for the time, except for the budget and the fact that he's a first time director. Um and yeah. uh and again i feel like i feel like we baby. really we really need to give people context of what that number means like 40 million dollars yes. in 1990 that is 80 million dollars right now yes in 2020 80 million dollars this is like a major film this is dan Aykroyd, the star of ghostbusters and ghostbusters 2 and dragnet you know they're thinking this is going to be like a huge movie and it has and, and major then, and problems. They, <laughs> and they allow it to go, what would in our dollars be $10 million over budget. Um, oh, and... right, because, because apparently on the set, Aykroyd refused to say no to any idea his crew came up with. Oh, my God. <laughs> so Which they would have why, like a yeah. set idea, a makeup idea, and he would just run with it. He loved every... Which is kind of beautiful. Like, I mean he just loved every idea that people were coming up with and they were all on his side. Apparently, you know, as, uh, as per usual, Chevy Chase was just a gargantuan fucking swollen asshole to everybody on the set. And uh, the, the crew had like pulled Dan Aykroyd uh, aside and been like, we will smash him in the face with a brick. If you tell us to like, we are on your side. He's awful. Like a couple of things that Chevy Chase did on set was he would berate Demi Moore for her wardrobe being too skimpy both to her. I mean, this is crazy to me. I saw that and I was like, that's so mean. Also because like, it's, she's not even in charge of yeah. that. <laughs> like, you know, um, to Demi Moore and to De and to the crew and in front of the crew and in front of the crew, he would make fun of Dan Aykroyd for making less than him, even though he would had written, directed and was starring in the movie, uh, and producing the movie also. Well. And Chevy Chase was saying that his fee was higher and that Dan Aykroyd was like, was like a broke actor. I mean, there, I mean, you can just picture Chevy Chase doing that too. Right. Being like, Hey, uh, I'm, I'm making more money than you. Right. Like I'm making more money than you. I mean, I guess, I guess that means like I'm more important than you. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Right. Cause you wrote it and directed it, but I, I'm the most important person here. But what's so you know, interesting like, about that is that Chevy Chase said that he only did the movie because he was friends with Dan Aykroyd. Yeah. That's the crazy part. He's just such a, I mean, he's just a real like scorpion in the toad kind of guy. Do you know what I mean? He cannot stop being an asshole. Yeah, I think that's what it is. He just, he can't shut his fucking mouth. He can't, his, his default mode is like insulting someone and being ex like just extremely mean spirited. Have you guys ever heard that story um, uh, that Rob Hubel has told about being at the UCB theater and Chevy Chase dropping in to like help out? Uh, for like an improv show and Hubel who's in the show with him goes up and says, Mr. Chase, I'm a big fan. I'm really excited to be working with you tonight. And Chevy Chase just rears back and slaps him open palmed across the face. <laughs> That's the I first mean, thing he thought to do when meeting a new human being. Well, I mean, but was it like a joke or something? Well, I this don't is know. the thing. Like was, know. was he joking when he was making fun of Dan Aykroyd for making less money? Like there's this line that Chevy Chase never seems to be able to know when he's crossed it or not. And, and this is, I'm fascinated. I have become fascinated over the last decade with Chevy Chase because I don't know about you guys, but growing up, I love Chevy Chase. Chevy Chase is an empirically 
hilarious person. I mean, I love Fletch definitely. Uh, Fletch. I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna disagree with the both of you on on Chevy Chase. You didn't like Fletch. Never, you didn't I'm even just like gonna Fletch. be I'm just gonna be I I hate to do this because it sounds like I'm I'm the one who's being like I always hated Chevy Chase. But even as a child, I hated Chevy Chase. I never thought he was funny. And no. then as I grew into an adult, I ne- I just I just never got it. I never got his sense of humor. And I love dicks. Like I love dickish senses of humor. I love people. I love mean spirited sense of humor often. But yeah. Chevy Chase it just never did it for me. I, I, well, what I was going to say was like, I, I like Fletch a lot. Actually, I thought it was funny. And I, you know, I, I was always trying to convince myself that I thought the first season of Saturday Night Live was great, like as a 10 year old in 1992 <laughs> or whatever, but like not really understanding what was going on or why it was funny. But I was like, yes, this is good. This is really going good. Going to middle school and trying to have intellectual conversations about the first couple right. seasons of SNL that you watched on VA. Exactly. And like everybody being kind of like, what the fuck is he talking about? You know how Gerald Ford's always falling down. (laughs) So I was there, man. I was there, man. (laughs) But but what but what I but so I was a kid when his talk show happened, and I remember being like kind of excited to see it, but also somehow knowing it was supposed to be bad Mm. and watching it and just like waiting for something funny to happen and being like really confused and kind of betrayed feeling because of thinking he was funny and other things being like, what the fuck is going on with this guy? Like when is when is this going to be funny? I don't know. I I've always I've always found his his dickishness that's always really really clicked with me and then to discover just in the last decade or so like hearing all of the stories about what a monster he is and is like such a uh, uh the poster boy for like white man fails upward in Hollywood um was was very eye-opening and you can see like he just it's so obvious. I mean this movie is bug nuts bananas for so many reasons but it's so like he it's just so obvious he just doesn't care he doesn't want to be there he's not making any kind of effort to be funny i mean it's such a i mean love him or hate him you can at least say that in his pomp he's making an effort to like entertain people but not in this he's just kind of shrugging his shoulders being a doofy rich guy yeah, all of his jokes were bad and mean, I thought. And it did lead me to wonder how many of them were improv by him because of exactly what we're talking, you, you and I are talking about, Ricky, about the way he's like, sometimes he's just not that funny and he's kind of a huge douche. And he would just do these lines, you know, like he's driving through a slum and he leans out the window and he goes, uh, sell pork, buy gold to some bums and then goes back in his limousine. And I'm like, am I supposed to be on his side and right. laughing at that? Like, He's just being a douche to these people. Well, I think you're reminding me to bring up um, a very important part of this movie, which is right off the top, the motivations for the characters are so wildly unclear and uninteresting that the stakes are impossible to make out through the majority of the movie. Yes, right? 100%. Like the, the, I was explaining this to someone right before we started doing this because my friend asked what we were we were talking about. And I was like, yeah, so Chevy Chase has a hot neighbor who needs to go to Atlantic City and he offers to right. give her a ride. And on the way there, they get they don't just get caught speeding. He takes a cop on a high speed chase and then gets like arrested for it. But then the cop is like, well, I'll forget about the high speed chase, but you did go through a stop sign, yes. which I guess is 
a joke, but right. also it's very bewildering. And John Candy doesn't really deliver it like a joke. He's playing it so straight that it doesn't it doesn't seem funny at all. Well, that's the thing you about know? this movie. It feels like it's written exquisite corpse style at times, where like each line has no knowledge of what the like two lines ago was. Right. Yeah. Right. Definitely. Like someone was folding over the script, and then another person was coming in and writing their ideas down and their dialogue because you're kind of <laughs> like. Wait, what? He just took this person on a high-speed chase. I get this is a comedy, but you can't just take a cop on a high-speed chase and then just be... And there are no consequences at all. When he pulls him over, he was like, you were speeding. And he's like, no, he took you on a high-speed chase. Guns would be drawn. He would be on the ground getting cuffed, like in any jurisdiction, no matter how small town it is. And perhaps this is the point at which we should try and unpack like how this screenplay came into existence as as you were oh as God, you were, yes. as you were saying ricky this started because uh he wanted to write a horror comedy so then his next idea is well there was this time in the 70s when i was speeding through upstate new york late at night and i got pulled over and instead of being able to pay the ticket right then and there i had to go to a judge's house in the middle of the night uh to pay it in what's essentially a kangaroo court and because the judge was so pleasant, she invited me to tea afterward, and I just ended up hanging out there all night with this woman. All right, so that there's like that. That's a great movie. Like that, yeah. on the face of it, sounds like a really good movie. So then, because he wants to make a horror comedy, he takes that concept and just decides, like, okay, anybody who doesn't live in a city must be a hillbilly and a monster like I, I see know, in Deliverance. Exactly. So now I have to map that onto These people it. are like cartoon. This movie is basically positing that within a one hour drive of New York city. There are the most insane kind of mutated hillbilly monsters that if you, a normal person from Manhattan, were just trying to drive to Atlantic city. If we just, with one turn, you could be in some kind of like deliverance on Mars, kind of like dripping ooze situation. Whereas that makes sense in a movie. Like, I mean, it's, it's racist in judgment night, but in judgment night, they are driving through Chicago and right. they go off, they take one wrong exit and end up in the south side of Chicago, right? Like that makes sense. It's not necessarily the right thing to, to make a movie about, but like <laughs> right. in terms of geographical- It's, it's in reality in some way. This is like, yeah, they, they, they get, this is like if you were driving to Newark and you got over that, that, that bridge, took a wrong turn, all of a sudden you're in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? exactly like it's you know and why can i just say evan it's so funny you bring this because this is like uh, i was watching the movie and i was and uh, you know because they're they're leaving new york they get pulled over by these mutant hillbillies they go to this kangaroo court and i was like is this movie just based on some time where like dan Aykroyd like definitely deserved to get a ticket and got a ticket somewhere outside of new york and he was like those fucking hillbillies are trying to take advantage of me big time celebrity dan Aykroyd." right and then i did look it up and i was like oh my god that is literally what the inspiration for this film well, I was just say, and to twist the knife even further, he has to then come up with a setting that will look uh, post-apocalyptic. So he takes this story, which is a true story. It's a historical um, event that happened in this mining town in Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania, a town called Centralia, um, where in 1962, because uh, a bunch of people had been uh, dumping their waste illegally, the town decided to make a formal landfill, which sat right on the top of an abandoned coal mine. Uh, and to get the waste down to a manageable level, started lighting it on fire. Didn't realize the fire had caught in like this air pocket that went a direct uh, line down to one of the mine shafts. 
and started an underground fire that nearly 60 years later is burning to this day. The entire town has been abandoned. Eight people live there now, whereas 2000 uh, did at its, at its zenith. Um, because it's just spewing noxious fumes from up under this never-ending fire. Uh, he's like, so I'm going to take that setting uh, to place this whole thing into. So he, so to speak to that point about the exquisite corpsing of the script, there's all of these elements that are actually kind of intriguing on their own. And then he's just trying to figure out how to shoehorn them all in to one thing. And then, as you also mentioned, uh, when you actually get on set, because he's a first-time director, he can't say no to anybody. So it just mm -hmm. starts piling up and piling up and piling up. And yeah, there's no. I was I was rewatching the movie and I had forgotten that like the whole setup is only about ten or fifteen minutes from like the beginning of the movie to the point at which John Candy pulls them over. That's standard three act structure, but it feels so much longer. Because it's all of this narrative deadweight that doesn't really go anywhere or explain anything. You kind of get the sense that Demi Moore is like having an affair with this client who's trying to buy this land and then just... They're in the Poconos, right? Is that yeah. what it is? Yeah, and, and, and so then she has to go to drive to Atlantic City. And it's just, you just feel, just, it's so sweaty, this, this attempt to try and... <laughs> derive some kind of like narrative impetus for these two people to a get together and b then go on this journey and none of it makes any because, sense yeah it doesn't make any sense and because also like you're saying so this plot all this plot stuff is happening in these like 12 minutes at the beginning of the movie yeah. but also what's mostly happening during those scenes is chevy chase is going like hubba hubba check her out and there's these like long shots of demi moore's right. legs I'm, or like, i'm a rich her, i'm a like, rich guy but i don't give a shit up. about being a rich guy i'm a cool rich guy you know i'm a cool rich guy can we just... i published my own newsletter yeah, can, right. I, can i can i step in to just be extremely thirsty about demi moore in this movie oh my gosh she's looking she's looking great I, in this um, movie right i mean i know the 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 movie she has no other role in this movie but then but to be objectified. Like there's no real dialogue for her. There's no character, but that's also the case for most of the people in the movie. But God, <laughs> but God damn, does she look good with that little haircut, that short haircut and that, that outfit that she's wearing that uh, Chevy Chase called too skimpy. Fuck you, Chevy Chase. She looks amazing. It's some kind of sailor outfit kind good of Lord. or something. Well, it looks like something Marilyn Monroe yeah. or like uh, Jane Mansfield might have worn in the fifties. And this, what this is the trip about Demi Moore. So this is a point in her career. She's just kind of finding her way into stardom. Like St. Elmo's Fire, I think, was like five or six years before. Um, you know, her her ninety successes are in front of her. Um, so she's young. She's like twenty seven years old, and the, there's there's some kind of interest. In this character, if you squint hard enough, she's a lawyer, she's single, she very clearly kind of only cares about uh, her career, you know, that's ostensibly the thing that kicks off the plot of the whole movie. Um, those outfits are very specifically designed, you know, like her entire look is very much tapping into like what a lot of directors were doing in the 80s, invoking this postmodern, you know, film noir kind of like sensibility. Um, 
there yeah, is the there's 80s, like the the eighties was the reflection on the fifties Americana, like in entirely. Like it's like the thirty year pop culture cycle, right? Where it's like thirty years later you start sort of recreating that period in some sort of post modern version idea of it. Like we're doing like like the nineties and the early aughts did with the seventies and like we're about we're just starting to and yeah, going right. to continue to do with the nineties and early aughts now. Yeah. And like, again, there's like this very, it seems very clearly uh, an intentional choice, whether it's, whether it came from the costume designer or it came from Ackroyd or some combination of the two, like that character, like I kind of want to watch a movie. I want to watch a rom-com about that character, but instead she kind of just gets dumped into this insanity and is forgotten. Yeah, like I wanted to, her to get to this development and figure out what's going on with this guy that she's like maybe having an affair with or maybe yeah. not having an affair right. with. Right, which is like the entire plot setup of the film and never entirely. ever spoken of again. We should yeah. we should also say she's making this this is the first movie that she she has come out off of the success of Ghost. Which is that's right. Maybe like one of the top I think we said the one of the three most successful movies of nineteen ninety. Um which she if is not like, the most. You know, didn't it make didn't it make like isn't its worldwide total like just some insane number? That's 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 possible. I know domestic it was like five hundred or six hundred million, five hundred million in nineteen ninety. Or at least from then till now, yeah. It was huge. Yeah. I'm seeing a uh, worldwide worldwide gross five hundred million dollars. It was the most financially lucrative movie of 1990 worldwide. Oh wow! wow. It beat Home Alone. Wow. It beat Dances with Wolves. It beat Total Recall. It beat Back to the Future Part Three. Like insane. I mean, maybe that's why. Maybe that's how he got forty million. He had her cast. You know, maybe he had her yeah. cast, and that's how he her Chevy Chase. I don't really know what Chevy Chase was coming off of because Fletch was like early 80s, right? It was definitely. Yeah, it's yeah, 85. This is like Funny Farm. Is this Christmas like around vacation. when that movie came out? Christmas Vacation. Christmas yeah. Vacation, I think, was, was 89. So he would have been cast maybe off the back of that. Right. I mean, that's pretty major, right? And then John Candy is in the movie also. Like, it, he's a pretty big star at this point or yeah, this is pretty, i guess a, i mean he's a big star at this point yeah i mean this the studio wanted him specifically i think they told Ackroyd like you have to cast john candy and chevy this is kind of the beginning of chevy's fall or maybe maybe fun, maybe <laughs> funny farm and caddyshack 2 and fletch lives were but christmas vacation was like a hit right off the start yeah uh, or right right when it came out but then, you know, post this, it's Memoirs of an Invisible Man, which we've talked about on this podcast briefly before. Carpenter said that Chevy Chase made it the worst experience of Carpenter's life. And this is a man who's worked with James Wood. That's crazy. Um, <laughs> and then uh, Chase made Cops and Robertsons, Man of the House, his Vegas Vacation, and Snow Day. Last action hero. Yeah. I mean, he didn't really, you know, that was the beginning of his fall. And the talk shows during that period too. Yeah. But yeah, there's no follow up. Just going back on this, there's no follow up on whatever is set up with Demi Moore's story in the first act of the movie. Is there? It seems really important at the beginning of the movie. Like it's they're getting them all out of Manhattan and driving to Atlantic City, and you know, these Brazilian people are coming with them for some reason. Who they keep calling the Brazilianaires. Right, who they keep making. Um, how did you guys keep... feel about this whole, those guys? I didn't like film? it. I didn't like it. It's, they're just, <laughs> the, the whole joke is that they're Brazilian and have an accent. It was mean. Right. And, they don't t- and they don't take no yeah. for an answer. 
Yes. Like, I'm, it's just that they have silly, they talk funny. That's the only thing about them, right? Yeah, I'm not one to be oversensitive about stuff like this, but it's just not, it just wasn't funny. There was nothing for them. I, like well, anybody in the movie, there was nothing for them to do. I did. Taylor Negron had the only like genuine laugh uh, like that I had during the movie was when, when they're first driving into this crazy kangaroo court, it's like they go over a drawbridge yeah. and then there's like broken cars and TVs and toasters everywhere. And there's like fire coming out of the ground and Taylor Negron goes, this place has a very bad energy. <laughs> I, was like, I, did laugh. I genuinely laughed at that. I was like, yeah, no shit. No shit. You um, know, I don't want... it's what I was going go ahead. Well, I, was, I was, I was just going to say like all of the, like we, we can, we can complain about the plot all we want because the plot is ridiculous. It, it, it's utterly illogical, but like one of the things that if this movie were successful, you could have, you could toss off, that inciting incident and have it not matter you know you Mm -hmm. wouldn't you don't a movie like this doesn't necessarily need to have some sort of airtight narrative to it because the whole movie is supposed to be about excess it's supposed to be about grotesquerie but you know i don't i don't know how you guys feel about tim burton but he kind of lived large in my head when i first saw it because i think that like a movie like beetlejuice is not far from what a model for a movie like this could be. And I think Beetlejuice is a delightfully funny movie. And this is dead on arrival. It's utterly leaden. Um, and, and, and wait, well, can I say, I totally know what you mean. I, t- I was thinking of Tim Burton stuff too, a little bit, but I was thinking more of like, I kept thinking of like Penguin and Batman Returns and stuff during this movie. Sure. But I know what you mean. Like on its face, like Beetlejuice is like, it's a spooky old house and all kinds of crazy shit happens and the walls and the doors fly away and the furniture has arms and walks around. And it's like, this is like, oh, it's a spooky old courthouse and the, you know, everything, the judge comes out of the ceiling and the bench comes out of the wall and there's a crazy conveyor belt. It's like, it could have worked in theory in a certain way, yeah. but like it doesn't in execution at all, at all, at all, at all, at all. I think, yeah. I think it doesn't work. I agree with you. I think, I think it doesn't work is because with Tim Burton, you have the genres of like Gothic horror meeting, meeting a form of comedy, which is like, there's something inherently maybe that or something that you can draw out of the seriousness of, 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 of Gothic romanticism that can mm. be, you can inject jokes into that a little bit. Whereas like the, the horror that he, that Aykroyd is pulling from is Texas Chainsaw, which on its face is so exploitative and funny at times on its own, you know, like d- the dad like yelling at, at Leatherface, like you right. ruined my door, you idiot, is a very <laughs> funny scene. So, and that, and that's what makes that, that, that work already. So like amping that humor up even more, just all of a sudden takes you, there's, there's no way to buy into the movie whatsoever. Cause you're, you're, I mean, Chainsaw being one of my favorite movies, you're, what's great about it is you're almost unwilling to buy into it already, but there's just some little glitches of reality inside this absurdity that make it terrifying. And I think, um, Ackroyd turning up the humor like you can't find any reality in this and also as we've said there's no motivation or plot whatsoever 
Yeah, it's a, and I, you know, I mean, I know it's supposed to be a horror comedy, but I didn't find myself scared no, very often no. or ever at all. You know, like he definitely right. misunderstands, like mis misunderstands horror for disgusting. Like he thinks yes. that right. yes. like everything that was terrifying about Chainsaw was what was gross about it, and that's just not what it was at all. And I'll and I'll I'll give Ackroyd the slightest bit of credit in that you know the studio made him cut it so it could get a PG-13 rating. So oh, yeah. so there it was probably in its original form a little bit more gruesome, but that kind of speaks to this point of the movie for as outre as it is, almost feels like it's stuck between uh, uh, two places and it doesn't know which way to go. Like it needs more um, empathy, which you might get from Tim Burton, or it needs to be much more brutal and much nastier and much meaner, which you would get from Toby Hooper. But it, yeah. it's not I, it's not either of those things. So it's just a mess, and it's a really unpleasant well, a weird mess. Thing, it is. It's a total mess. Yeah. It's like it's like you're saying. It doesn't kind of pick what's happening to its central characters because it does try to do the thing where so they get arrested and they're kind of being held hostage in this basement or whatever, and then it shows you some other people get killed by these same people. So that should establish stakes and make you right. worried that they're going to get killed, but never for a second did I feel that way. It's like the judge is having dinner with them and he's, you know, having arguments with them and he's trying to get Chevy Chase to marry his daughter yes. like immediately. There's nothing, there's nothing. So I didn't feel like anyone was in danger. I didn't feel like they were in danger. That's one of the fundamental issues with the movie is you're just going, you're just questioning what is this movie about? What am I supposed to be paying attention to right now? Because there is no sense of danger or belief in, in just the central uh, scenes that are taking place in the movie. Why are they sitting there? Why haven't they left? What are they scared of? Are they scared? Like nothing is just. Does he like? Does this judge like them, or does he not like them? Is he going to kill them, or should we be afraid of him, or not, or like? That's like, and then they bring in that those that new group of characters that the judge does kill right away, who are just such unbelievable assholes. You sort of buy why the judge would have done that. So then it's like, oh, am I supposed to like the judge? Well, yeah, because and then you're like, well, obviously, because our main characters are not as bad as these people, so they don't have anything to worry about. Yeah, you know? and but also our main character is an asshole, and like, right, yeah, does maybe deserve to get killed. <laughs> right, <laughs> he's just right away being a douche. Like, yeah, they're 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 afraid for the, for their lives, and they're Demi Morris to, says to Chevy Chase, like, just shut up and let me do the talking. And then they're just kind of saying, of having a very small amount of small talk. And Chevy Chase is like, everybody shut the fuck up. I'm sick of this old dumb asshole. Mm. <laughs> well, and also, like, like to, to speak to that point is, you know, you're, you also get this, am, am I supposed to feel sympathetic for, for Ackroyd's character moment when he starts talking about how his family got swindled out of a coal deal. And, like, that's why they're in right. such dire straits. I'm like, oh, so is this... Is he like a modern day Robin Hood taking down the yuppies? Um, which that angle is actually quite intriguing as well. But then he pulls back and makes you feel nothing but uh, disgust and repulsion for him and his fat looks like a John Candy granddaughter and his weird like baby men who are working out. And like, like we should feel sympathy for them or they should be monsters. They can't be this weird mishmash in, in the middle. Again, it's an exquisite, like it's an exquisite corpse movie. Right. Like it, right. it's solely operating off of 
whatever scene that happens to be writing at that time or like in at that time. And then sometimes it's, and then often actually, it's not even operating off of the scene. It's whatever is happening in that second. Right. Because oftentimes you'll be in a scene and someone will say something. You'd be like, that's not what this scene is about or what your character, where your character is going. But it doesn't read about Dan Aykroyd writing the dialogue and being like, okay, well, what would he say back? And then what would he say back? And what would he say back? (laughs) And then that's it, you know, and then he takes a break for a couple days and then he comes back and writes another scene, you know? What's interesting is that like you bring up Toby Hooper because we were talking about Texas Chainsaw Massacre and it is like Hooper has made this movie a few times with like, especially with like Chainsaw and Eaten Alive and both those Mm. movies, especially Eaten Alive, is very funny. Even I know Eaten Alive got taken away from him, but like, like he knew exactly, like those weren't just horror movies. And he has often said that the first Chainsaw was supposed to be a comedy. And that's why the sequel is. I'm just so like bummed out by someone wanting to do another version of like a Hellraiser or a Texas Chainsaw and fucking it up so miserably. So bad. Like so like Biff it so fucking hard. Well, and it's so talking about, talking about empathy and grotesquery and, 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 and to what degree you grab on both of those things. It's so interesting to remember that the day before this movie came out, Silence of the Lambs came out, which is a movie that wrestles, wrestles with both of those poles in a very interesting way. Um, and it's not a funny movie, or at least it's not, you know, intended to be a comedy. Um, but I just, I, 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 I'm just trying to picture like what it would have been like to walk into a movie theater that weekend in February of 1991 and been like, which one do we pick, honey? Right. I feel like, I feel like if you were David Brooks and you happened to see both of them, you'd be like, America is sick. I'm going to go right <laughs> about it. America's sick fascination with murderers and freaks. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanna... Yeah, no, but I, I, that's what I love about doing this show, though, Evan, like, in all honesty, it's like, because we forget that, like, this was, this was just as much culture as Silence of the Lambs, like, from the point of view of, like, studio executives and, you know, like, movie theater people, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, this was in the movie theater the same time Silence of the Lambs was in the movie theater, and so, of course, we selectively remember the things that, like, have survived the test of time, but I love having an excuse to watch, like, something like this, like, as an adult, and really think about it, because it's, like, it's just all completely gone from our collective consciousness, you know? I will say this does kind of, this movie as well, as much as it's not a success, ties into something I was saying about Silence of the Lambs in, 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 in last week's episode, which is that this is sort of the beginning of the mainstreaming of like gross out horror humor and movies. Like um, Silence of the Lambs is sort of like the modern version of Psycho where it's like taking it to the next logical end that will then set up an entire decade of um, transgressive rock and roll, horror movies, thriller movies that are very much in the mainstream and are not like horror in the 80s where they're like, you know, in the... In just in the horror section of the of the video store, or you know, just playing on midnight screens, they're actually now, you know, Jason Goes to Hell is playing in malls across America, as is, I don't know, name some other ninety like Scream, which is a, a a really violent movie that is like which I love, but is also now playing in every home and is totally normal to go see at that at that time. I want I feel like nothing but trouble kind of fits into that as well, even though it was definitely not a success and you could never argue that it set up anything in the culture. following, (laughs) (laughs) Except for for Dan Aykroyd's lack of work. (laughs) 
I want to talk about a scene with Demi Moore where she kisses Chevy Chase and seemingly orgasms. Oh my God. From pecking him on the face. And I want to know whose idea you think that scene was. (laughs) (laughs) Because up to this point, okay, we know that Chevy thinks she is hot, but everything, everything that's happened between them is like, she hates him so much. She, everything she does, she fucking hates, hates him. Hates the kind of person he is. Hates his specific actions. She, he's gotten her in all kinds of trouble. They are maybe gonna die. And then there's just like a, all of a sudden a two shot of them sitting on the bed, and she, they're just like all of a sudden she cannot keep her hands off of him, and she is kissing him and like rubbing on him. And I was like, yeah, I was like, yeah, I wonder how this ended up in the movie. <laughs> you know, she's not it, it, just kissing and rubbing on him. She's she's like rubbing his face. And giving it's it's a very similar kiss to the one between Kim ba- Basinger and and Dana Carvey in Wayne's World Two, um, <laughs> but for some reason she is coming while doing it. Like she kisses yeah. him three times and is like, "Oh my god, I've got to lay down." Ooh! And you're like, "What See, the fuck just happened?" I thought maybe. I thought maybe she was supposed to be like drunk and falling asleep or something. I really couldn't tell. <laughs> maybe I've never seen a woman have an orgasm before, Ricky, but because I didn't, that, I wasn't sure at all what was supposed to be happening. Was like, Chris, Chris, I'm sorry. Whatever's going on between you and your wife, that's your business. Keep it off the show. We have a lot of problems in our relationship, guys. <laughs> that scene is absolutely an acroid. It has to be. I mean, like this is a man who thought it would be funny if he got a blowjob from a ghost. Yeah, right. And it, it does have very strong cross-eyed. I'm getting a blowjob from a ghost energy. Like there is this, there is this always this thing of, and this is, I mean, this goes back to the beginning of Hollywood, where like an an, an objectively unattractive man is having babes throw themselves at them, and that goes throughout Chevy Chase's entire career, whether it's Christy Brinkley and Beverly D'Angelo in Vacation. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the checkout girl at, in Christmas vacation, like his entire career, uh, babes just want to bone this dickhead. You know, he's like, he's like, he's like the ultimate negging bro, you know? Yeah. That's true. yeah. I mean, I wonder if that's where, if that's where it came from. Right. Chevy yeah. Chase was the beginning of like, look, man, you just got to go up, pretend you don't care and just be mean to him. Just be mean to them, you know? They'll Let them know you think they're a piece of shit. They love it. They love Ignore it. Ignore them. Pretend they're not even there. What always blew my mind about va- the vacation movies is like, it's Christy Brinkley, right? That's the model that like is pulls up next yeah. to him, right? But at the same time, like she's beautiful, but his wife is Beverly D'Angelo. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's exactly. Not like, it's, it's kind of an embarrassment of riches there. It's not right. even like... It's not even like a, oh my God, like, you know, I, I just haven't been able to like, you know, be with a, a, my, my wife and I are getting old together and we both look like shit. And oh my God, this beautiful woman's hitting him. It's like, no, your wife is Beverly D'Angelo. You could like see Christy Brinkley flirt with you and then be like, all right, that's cool. Now I'm going to go fuck my hot wife too. That sounds great. <laughs> well, Ricky, I mean, I think what you're not understanding is like, it's not like Chevy Chase would be married to an uggo. Do you know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> Chevy Chase, he's got to be married to a hot lady. <laughs> and then an even hotter lady is hitting on him. These are the kinds of things that happened to him in, in his life. He's been married for almost 40 years somehow. Get the fuck out of here. I swear no to God, he's been married way. to the same woman for the last like 40 years. Wow. That is completely insane. Yeah. 
I mean, maybe he's a real sweetheart. At home, I, th- you know? I, I think it's one of those situations where if I, like, I met her, I'd be like, blink twice if you need help. I feel like we've talked around a fair amount of things, and we should dive into like th- 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 some of the set pieces in this movie. I don't know if you would call them set pieces, but like, I'm going to list them, and then we'll talk about them afterwards. But yeah. one, the, one, the dinner scene. Two, the roller coaster scene, the first one, and then the second one, but the first one when Daniel Baldwin and his crew show up. Um, uh, three, the uh, the the, ba- the babies, right? The the big yep. babies. Um, four, the uh, digital underground. <laughs> I think. I mean, I think that's pretty much it because within the babies, we can talk about the junkyard. But I think that's I think that's that's pretty much it. Le- let me know if there's one more that you'd like to add, and we'll we'll add it. Yeah, to I mean, I guess like all the all the scenes were like him and Demi Moore like getting lost in the house, you know, and like you know walls are like flying at them or oh, these yeah. weird tunnels they had and to travel sees, through. Oh, honestly, we and I could take his nose right. off. And I could take his nose off, but also, well, let's start there, right? Because that's the dinner scene as well as the nose getting taken off. So in the dinner scene of the movie where they are fed these disgusting looking sausages, um, just yeah. truly horrendous gray sausages. Yeah, they're, they're um, human flesh. Like that seems to be the implication. Again, like a Texas Chainsaw Massacre riff. Um, right. And they're very droopy. They're very yeah. droopy oh, like, and white. And it's like disgusting, disgusting, disgusting to bro- look at. Like boiled water falling out of them. They're disgusting. And Dan Aykroyd um, doesn't seem to eat his. He seems to sort of slurp and gulp his hot dog um, and stuff it in his prosthetic liver-spotted face. And from a profile shot, we see that his nose is a tiny penis. Yep. Um, Very subtle. Very subtle. And so... We've referenced this, I think, but I think we should. What did any either of you think when all of a sudden his nose was a tiny penis? I mean, yeah, I I think like I said, I I I just went, oh, his nose is is a dick, and and my wife said, why? I just thought like, <laughs> and then because they don't really. Because they established that it's relatively early in the movie, and then the whole rest of the movie has to happen where he's got like a dick for a nose, but it's like it kind of just isn't a thing immediately after the first shot where it's like a joke. Then it's just like he just kind of has a weird like dent in his nose for the next hour of the film, you know? It doesn't really sustain itself as a joke, I don't think. Yeah, I didn't even notice it the first time I saw it. Actually, I mean, I, I I ended up reading something about the movie that pointed the fact out, and I was like, "That's fucking nuts!" And I and lo and behold, there it is. Just because, all right. He's got a big, dick. he's got a big dick nose. Ricky, how did you feel about the big dick nose? It's another one of those things where I read it on paper, and I'm like, I don't think it sounds great, but I'm like, that sounds so brazen and crazy i want to see that and i want to root for the person who's doing that but then i see it and i'm not rooting for them at all because it has it's not motivated by anything there's no wit behind it there's like you know uh i think more wit in like the worst jackass sketch that i've ever seen (laughs) um 
I love Jackass, but I mean, you know, obviously. Because why? Why is his nose a dick? Yes. And and what do they do with it? What do they do with it being a dick? Nothing. nothing. It's just no reason and nothing. Whereas, like you could, like you could say that he was sometimes trying to do like a John Waters thing with this movie, but like even in John Waters, when John Waters was disgusting, there was a why, and it was because of this, right? So take the most. Well, not all the time, but like at least he had worked his way up to a lot, it. A lot of the time, right? Like, yeah, like the the most offensive part of Pink Flamingos is probably when they inject the woman. There's like a a, a money shot close up of a woman's vagina, and they're injecting their the guy's injecting his semen into her after masturbating into his hand, right? And it's mm. like it's terrible, but like it's motivated by what that character wants. You could say the scene where the guy they're at a party and someone shows their sphincter popping out of their asshole is not motivated, but it's just a throwaway sort of B-roll party scene. It still kind of makes sense. This is a main character of this movie suddenly having a penis for a nose and then not really right. having one after. Because even when it take he takes it off, it doesn't look like the penis. Yeah, it just looks like a regular nose again, right? <laughs> it's just... Well, I guess if he could take it off, maybe he's got like several, and that's just his like fun party nose. Okay, so it's, my, that, it's my Saturday nose. So then that needs to be elaborated on, right? There needs to be a scene where he talks about having multiple noses that he puts on. Like in Return to Oz, where they she's got all the heads. There should just be like a, a bunch of noses, you know, and he puts it, hangs it back up with the other ones. I wonder if there was like if it was had to do with the rating or the cut where there was another moment where he was like, what do you think of my nose and t- tapped it or did something right? Like, maybe. I, yeah. I think I'm kind of joke to be with it or something. Like, an- like, do you think another bit on top of that would have saved it? I'm going to say no, I'm going to say no, but like maybe if it was funny, I don't know. You know, I'm going to say yes. Uh, it is wild that the movie is rated PG 13 though. I have to say like, why did the studio make them do that? that for this this movie like and how is this movie even rated pg-13 i wouldn't i don't approve of that you know well i mean the story is that like once they started seeing rushes and then they saw a rough cut they realized that they were not going to make back their investment and so they were just desperate to try and find any means to salvage um uh the project so it's a pg-13 movie you get more butts in the seats maybe you can break even that way but of course that didn't happen either then we have a roller coaster scene, or maybe it was right before the dinner scene, where Daniel Baldwin and a group of other coked out, boozed out people get arrested, and they get sent to die, which is obviously where they get their meat from, but they get sent to the junkyard and die. And the, the way that they get sent there is a roller coaster that plays a hair metal song on the way there. Yes. Right there. So there are like and three songs in the movie, or like two songs in the movie. One is the hair metal song that plays on the way. And it's unclear. I believe the hair metal song is about the roller coaster. I believe the lyrics are about Mr. Bone Crusher, which is the name of, of the machine that kills you. Mr. Right. Bone okay, Stripper. So, Pay it the respect it deserves. Mr. Bone Stripper. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so then that would mean that the that would mean that the that the roller coaster has a song that it plays while people are on it. Um, yes. and we should say this roller coaster, I don't know if we're describing it well, it, you get, you get dropped out of the courtroom, which is in this big, uh, Transylvania like house into what's like a ball pit, which is where Demi Moore and Chevy Chase got dropped. And then if you're bad, you get dropped into the roller coaster, which then a metal song kicks on and the roller coaster, uh, drives around the, the junkyard and then drops you somewhere where you get killed. 
right? Is that basically it? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And the roller coaster scenes are shot. Obviously, did they really built this roller coaster and you're seeing the people in this little car and from shot from low down in the front and it's like boom banging around and it looks all chaotic and not really like the kind of thing you see in a film you know yeah and that's why it was that's why it was so expensive all of those sets are real all of those effects are practical yeah the roller coaster was apparently one of the icings on the cake that was like you're dan you have to say no because it was like not in the script and the crew was like, what if we put him on a roller coaster? And he was like, yeah, that sounds great. Oh, my God. And That's fucking wild, I just, dude. Like- I just want to stress, as we progress through these moments, and with the dick on the nose, with the roller coaster, that this might sound interesting or enticing in terms of, like, <laughs> a, a crazy batshit failure with too many big ideas. And I can't stress enough, it is not. Yeah, are, it is not at all. It is not like that at all. You are better no. off not seeing this movie. <laughs> I did especially think with things like Mr. Bone Stripper, like I can imagine, not that Dan Aykroyd had to pitch anything in this movie to anyone. Obviously, he just got to do whatever he wanted with no oversight. But it's the kind of thing that sounds good, you know? You're like, and you can even imagine like like a storyboard of it, you know, of like, oh, and then they get shot on this roller coaster and they're screaming and then it shoots them into this machine and it's, then their bones shoot out the other end. Yeah. And it's like, oh, cool. But it's like, no, <laughs> no, it is not cool. The way that it's done, like it just, it's not interesting to look at. It's not funny or scary or it just mostly is confusing and loud and then it's over and you're just like oh thank god it's it, it's this thing of you know thing about you know mank is still in the discourse somehow and um the idea of like to what degree is a director primarily or even secondarily responsible for the finished product of a movie and this is a real example of how a different director working from analogous raw materials would have made a much better movie. I, I feel like that's, that's, yes. that's inarguable. Like if you had, I mean, especially if this wasn't even in the script, if this was just like Dan Aykroyd riffing on stuff. Yeah. If you like... get, if you gave this story treatment to somebody else to rewrite the script and then shoot it, like, but w- wanting to keep the same tone, the same outrageousness, but give it some heft, give it some visual wit, give it some, give it some teeth. Yeah. Give it some sense. You know, you, you would have, you would like, just have such a better product. Make a little sense. Like it's, it's yeah, you, yeah. you want to root against the studio and you want to root against Chevy Chase and you want to back Ackroyd like the crew did. But a lot of this feels like it comes back to Ackroyd. Yeah. I mean, Soderberg, well, I, this is what I think. Soderbergh has always said that it's always the director's fault, no matter what happened that right. like, you know, if the star, if the actor doesn't work for the part, then the director mis- didn't cast them. If the if the studio, um, you know, like took the movie away from the director, then the de- director didn't leverage themselves right. Like it's right. always, no matter what happens at the end of the day, it's always the director's fault. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that, but, you know, that's what God Soderbergh says. So I'll leave it. <laughs> <laughs> And Dan Aykroyd certainly seems to have had a lot of power on this movie with not a lot of oversight. Yeah. Like, yeah, they gave him $40 million, which is the equivalent, as you said, of an $80 million for a directorial debut for an unfinished script. Yeah. 
Yeah, and like, it doesn't make any fucking sense. The movie that they put together, like, it, and it, it doesn't have convey any emotions. And, I mean, maybe the best thing about it is Demi Moore being hot. I mean, like, other than that, like, what does this movie have going for it? Yeah, that's about um, it. And we should say, oh, sorry, go ahead, Evan. Well, I was going to say, I mean, as, as we work our way through these set pieces, that will be the theme every single time. Like, what was the point of this? What am I supposed to get out of it? Oh, exactly. So let's now, I think, post roller coaster, post penis nose dinner. Um, and we, as we said, it's a nose that he then, Chevy Chase then sees Dan Aykroyd's character remove um, and pull off his face as he goes to bed. Another moment that should maybe be scary or funny and is neither and is just gross happens. Um, and. Then we get to, Chris, what you uh, wanted to talk about, rightly. The babies. The babies. The babies. And I got to say, I'm a, I am a little sad that it, we're an hour and 10 minutes in and are just getting to the babies because, <laughs> I mean, they are fucking something else. Before, before. So there's a lot. To before, be- Chris, you, you, no, you, you, you open this up. I do want to say, Ackroyd apparently claimed that he knew somebody who had two siblings who look like this and acted yeah, like this off, that is either that is either a bald-faced lie or um he's in the middle of one of his ufo conspiracy uh, uh hallucinations because that's ridiculous the idea you're going to try and find a way to like ground those two characters in realism cocaine's a hell of a drug man <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so it's basically like Demi Moore is in the junkyard because she's running away and she's stumbling through the junkyard, which at this point is some kind of like labyrinth where it contains different little sections and little whole worlds existing within this junkyard. And she stumbles upon the these babies and they're like, is there are they're they're both Dan Aykroyd or is only one of them Dan Aykroyd? Only one, only one of them only, is Dan Aykroyd. Only one of them. The other one, so two... the other one is not like a known actor of any kind. It's right. which looks weird to me. Like you think you would try to, like I know he took the part because he apparently couldn't find anyone else to do it, but you think you would have tried to cast with this budget somebody else that was like a some comedian yeah, you know like um, a, some, some you know stand-up comedian for god's sakes because at the end they do the like um the credits where you see the, the person and it says their name and he's the only one of the babies the other to credit yeah it doesn't work any sense all right and like, like that's why i asked i was like was he playing both the babies no he just didn't give well, a credit to the other baby we're doing justice to what the babies are the babies are adult size um like like uh garbage pail kids yeah like disgusting sweaty fat men in diapers and they have these disgusting cartoon bellies that are like basketballs that they bounce up and down and they're like glistening and they're covered in filth and yeah they live in a junkyard sweaty latex like uh caught like like skin costumes that are like greasy yeah. and like slimy with that kind of like sticky slime that pulls away. And they speak in like a, a baby voice that's kind of like, uh, I want to play cards. No, I do. And it's... You're cheating. Yeah, it's, like. You wonder why they're there. You wonder why they're talking. Like why they have... Like what's funny about this? Just like everything else in the movie. 
Like, just like... I mean, you have to appreciate it just as a creature, I guess. At least for a minute, you can sort of be like, oh, okay, like, here's this weird new creature. Well, that's that's actually the only part of the movie that you can kind of enjoy it on. The only level of the movie that you can enjoy it on is consistently going like, oh, I bet that was fun to make. Like, I bet... <laughs> yeah, right. That, like, that, or, oh, he's bouncing the belly. I, I bet they did a lot of work on getting the belly right. Yeah, I bet that, I bet that wall... Or that like makeup effect was fun for the crew to have to put together. <laughs> Outside of that, you're it does not look like anybody's having fun, and nor are you as a viewer. <laughs> um, Evan, did you have any? Evan, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on these babies? Like what? All all I all I could think about is just like what it must have been miserable for Ackroyd to try and direct with that shit on. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's that's, that's got to be why we have so many sort of disjointed shots in the movie, right? Where it feels like actors yeah. are saying things, are like saying their lines for a scene days after the scene was shot at times, right? <laughs> right. Like even in the beginning, in the first trial scene, where Demi Moore, he's he's like, well, I, Dan Eckert's like, well, I'd like to hang out with you sometime. And Demi Moore's like, yes, I'd like that too. what happened here when did she do that line when were you guys recording that yeah right well because dan Aykroyd didn't want to direct in his makeup right so he just did their whole thing and then he put went into the makeup trailer and came back and did his whole thing you know it's fine they just cut it together later right it's what i mean they really do like when dan Aykroyd appears behind the judge's bench i think he's like if you watch it, I think it's really like one shot, one or two shots at the most, right? It's like a slightly wider and then a yeah. close up. And then there's just wide and close up of them, but there's never a shot. It's really poor direction. The rest of the movie. Yeah. But there's never a shot where everybody's in frame together, right? It's just right. looking down, looking up, looking down, looking up, but in close up often. So never does anyone feel like they're in the same scene. You know what, dude? I bet Dan Aykroyd thought he was being a fucking genius to shoot it like that. You know, I bet he like told tells people that story. Like, you know what? We're never in the same shot because I wasn't in the makeup. Yeah, but you can't tell. You can't notice at all. <laughs> yeah, probably. I wish, I wish, but it definitely does not feel like that. It feels like someone <laughs> did not know how to make a movie and was probably told by his DP at one point, like, "Hey, man, you know we're breaking the um, we're breaking the 180 degree rule here, or you know we're." we're <laughs> You know, we're not really, we're not getting a why that encompasses the entire scene. It's going to, it's not going to feel like anybody, like, whatever, fuck off. We just got to keep moving on. Come on. Chevy's being really mean to me right now. I, I, we can't keep shooting. <laughs> well, it's, it's really, it's really interesting that you bring up the DP because the DP is Dean Cundy, who was, became a legend thanks to his work with Robert Zemeckis and Steven Spielberg. And like, he's wow. three, when he filmed this movie, he was three years removed from Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which the entire point of that movie yeah. is to try and integrate elements that should not be able to exist in the same shot. So you'd think that a guy like Dean Cundy would have been able to help Aykroyd figure out how to do exactly what Ricky is saying he wasn't able to do. Yeah. I mean, all that, all that, that takes though for a professional crew member is to realize they're on an unprofessional set and be like, whatever gets the day done, you know, right. Let me get right. out of here. Um, so the other set piece that we have yet to bring up, uh, is the digital underground performance featuring a young, we mentioned it at the top a little bit, the digital underground performance featuring a young 
Tupac Shakur making his first appearance on camera. And what this is, is that John Candy's police officer character pulls over a music group, which we don't even see. We just suddenly see a limo pull up to the house and right. digital under gets out. And all of a sudden they're in front of Dan Aykroyd's character. And there is a brief nonsensical trial where they tell Dan Aykroyd that they're musicians. And then they play a song in typical, like, early to mid nineties fashion in Hollywood movies. Oh like my God. Right. A famous, like, you know, just corporate synergy, right? Like the yep. record company part of our company has, has a, has a band that we would like to put in this movie, find a way to write them in. And so they, they barely find a way to write them into this movie that isn't just like... the band shows up and the band plays a song and um, they play all around the world. And then my, I will, I don't want to cut off what my favorite part is going to be, but it is my favorite part is Dan Aykroyd gets up and plays keyboard with them. And it's the, for me, it was like somehow the one moment of joy I felt while watching the movie. Cause he's having a ball. He's the, he's actually having fun. It's the first time anybody's having fun in this damn thing. He likes these people. These are his kind of people. And it well, makes sense though, because like, all of Dan Aykroyd's previous movies are, are like his comedies Ghostbusters, Blues Brothers are joyous movies, right? right. And so, like, it right. makes sense that the only moment that would be like viscerally transcendent in any way whatsoever in this is a moment where people are being joyful and playing music together, and that's the only thing that I think he intrinsically knows how to how to direct and present because nothing else tonally lands, right? right. And he's always trying to what what fucks it up all the time the horror and the comedy is that it seems like there's someone in there trying to get out like um, a lightness and like a joy between these people. Like the judge is trying to like them. He's trying to have people around that he likes, but he's a monster for some reason, you know, but he, yeah. And he wants Chevy chase to marry his daughter. Yeah, like I was saying, he's, he's trying to set up a marriage and he's trying to eat people sausage, you know, right. Have dinner with them and like get to know them. Right. He, yeah. he wants new people in his life. And it goes back to what you said. And like the, the initial concept for the movie was Dan Aykroyd having to go to this kangaroo court that ended in tea with this really nice judge who he made a connection with. Right. So the yeah. movie is that, but it's so scared of being that until this one moment where Dan Aykroyd plays keyboard with digital underground. <laughs> and apparently, I mean, and it does as for everything you're saying, it does. The movie does kind of also grind to a halt for there to be a musical performance by digital yeah. underground, like basically out of nowhere. Um, although I do think they have one of the best lines in the movie. Also, again, when they get out of, at the house, the big spooky old house, someone in digital underground goes, they say they, they, they describe it as being seriously draculated. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty good. Here's you describe this scene as grinding to a halt. I want to ask, like, was that, <laughs> yeah, right. was that a feeling you had gotten used to at this point? Yeah. <laughs> like that implies the movie had some forward motion of some right. kind, right? Yeah, you're right. I withdraw that. Well, I was just going to say, it's it's interesting. Yeah, it feels like one of those corporate synergistic movies moves. But like, I haven't been able to confirm this. But the story that I read was that Aykroyd wanted Digital Underground in the movie. Like he knew that he like liked Humpty Dance and like worked some contacts at whatever their label was at the time to try and get them in the movie. Like that came from him apparently, which if that's true, that's a total other, like just somebody just say, it's fine. If we don't have another set piece, it's okay. 
We don't need to have the Humpty Dance people do their new single. Not even the Humpty Dance. (laughs) They're doing their new song nobody likes. But then you can kind of, I kind of believe that because the what's the whole thing of the Humpty Dance people? That guy's wearing that big weird fake nose. So obviously that would appeal to Dan Aykroyd. Yeah. Well, you know what that is? That's um, you know, that that's like a very old-timey way of like wearing sunglasses back in the day. Like if you didn't want to put zinc on your nose, you'd have this little plastic shield so you wouldn't get sunburned. Yeah, that's a, that's that a, that, yeah, that's no. actually a real thing. That wasn't like a macabre like detail. But he's wearing like a f- crazy fake nose. Well, it's, the, like, it's not. I mean, it's 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 guy. like match trying to match his skin tone. But like my my thought was that it was like one of those devices that a lot of people used to wear like they'd have it attached to their sunglasses so they wouldn't get sunburned either way it's fucking weird (laughs) and we brought this up before but this is tupac shakur's first appearance on film and he has the face of someone who has walked onto a big movie set for the first time oh yeah yeah so innocent and excited about being there it's he seems to be trying very hard to do a good job (laughs) Yeah, well, he was nine. He was nineteen years old. I mean, he hadn't really done much in his career yet, and like, of course, what I think what Juice was a year later. Mm. Does that sound right? And I, like, Juice, Juice and Poetic Justice were not long after this. Was Juice before he started his rap career? Um, I think they were coterminous. I think maybe he like released his first solo album like as the movie was coming out. Um, don't quote me on that, but I think that's the timeline. Right. 1992, Juice. Yeah. Yes, you're totally right. Wow. Yeah. Uh, all around the world. <laughs> and it is weird, too, because he is singing the hook in the song, which I guess is true if he's doing it in the video and in this, but not not rapping, as you might expect, knowing that he's Tupac and it's the rap group Digital Underground. Oh, right. His first album, Tupacalypse Now, was 1991. Okay, yeah. So, like, just after this came out, right? It was released on November twelfth, nineteen ninety one. So the has got to sit for a few months before. Yeah, Brenda's got a baby trapped, and if my homie calls on it, <laughs> the world was his oyster. I mean, he's just he's it. Even now, thirty years later, like he just and it's not a big part, um, but he has such presence, even for like a nineteen year old who hasn't done anything. Like he really does hold the screen. Like you can tell, like this is somebody who worth paying attention to. I well, he's a good looking guy. I mean, there's there's no two ways to put it, but he's a he's a good looking guy. Yeah, like, he's a, see him on very, the screen. He's yeah. like a very cute boy in the scene with his like innocent smile singing all around the world. He's like <laughs> very adorable uh in in the back there. Um I think, the, I think those are the major major set pieces. Is there uh, is there anything I'm missing before we get to our three questions in the end? Well, I mean, like we should maybe just give like a little bit of notice to the ending, which is a nothing ending because they hadn't written it when they got on set. Well, it's very obvious because it has two fucking endings. Right. Like they're, well, they're, three. They're, if you think this huge it. action set piece where they're escaping from the um, from the crazy house. They escape, okay? They go see the cops, and the cops are like, oh, let's go back and get them. And then it turns out the cops are in on it, but it's like all of that transpires in about 30 seconds. And then they're just having another set piece of escaping from the house, which you can tell, it's just like a different idea of how to do the same thing, but they put them both in the movie, connected in such a way where like 
it's almost like it's one continuous thing, but it's not. It's it's awful and very confusing, and I and it, I, I didn't enjoy it at all. Yeah, and then it's it's and then it's just the shoulder shrug of uh, the the epilogue, which again is supposed to be like this fun little like Tex Avery thing where like he runs through the wall, but it's it yeah it's what is it it's a minute and a half like we there's you you can just imagine that they wrote the, the day that they were going to shoot it he runs through the wall as you said tex avery style that's is that looney tunes yeah do they do a that's all folks on it no <laughs> no if only <laughs> and they just kind of zoom in on it i think yeah as, it's uh... like it's like all it's like Chevy Chase sees that, like you know, there's been the mine, there's been like the mine fire, and the the Dan Aykroyd uh, judge character is like, oh, I'm going to New York to meet my nephew, and he holds up Chevy Chase's license, and Chevy Chase runs out of the room through the wall, in and they, and that's it, and that's the end. It, that's like, what was this movie going for? What was the tone? How could you think that you could suddenly do this? I, it, again, exquisite corpse. Right? Just, yeah. We're gonna do this now. It has nothing to do with ha- with what happened in the last minute. And you know, just wouldn't it be funny if you know that's just the only question to explain anything that happens in the entire film. So, like, which is it? Oh, he sees these he sees these coming, and like he runs through the wall like Bugs Bunny. Like, wouldn't that be funny? Yeah. To be, to, I answer with would it? you know what i've seen the movie and the answer is no (laughs) it's not funny the 80s as we were talking about at the top of the show like these those snl alums had so much power and so much clout in the industry that they just kept writing their own tickets even if they didn't land um you know between chase and Aykroyd in particular and and bill murray like those guys were untouchable throughout most of that decade, and I, I, sorry, go ahead. Well, and I'll just say, uh, and, and and particularly when it comes to comedy, like it's it doesn't it doesn't surprise me that like a bunch of studio executives would say, "Listen, if you need to figure it out, you guys are, you're the comedy guys. You guys, you guys, you right. guys yeah. made the most important sketch show of the last twenty years. Like, we'll let you figure it out. Go for it." <laughs> I mean, first of all, I'll just say, Evan, I don't like your implication that somehow Sergeant Bilko isn't a great film. <laughs> You're saying Steve Martin could just do whatever he wanted in the early to mid nineties. <laughs> like, yeah, no, but you're totally right. It's like, you can just imagine the money guys who are like, um, well, that's, you know, Dan, you know, Dan Aykroyd from Ghostbusters, man. Like, he, you know, he'll figure it out. It'll be great. <laughs> you know, um, this, this maybe is too tangential, but do you think that, SNL the past couple of years has been, uh, as someone who watches SNL regularly, has been, I think, the worst it's ever been. Um, and I, initially that was a, it seemed right to blame that on the Trump administration and this idea that everybody is now connected to to politics and news in a way that makes the show just feel like it has to attack everything from a news angle and not from a comedy angle. But Recently, I've started to feel like it might be because there are less options for cast members following SNL. And the idea of becoming as successful as like a Mike Myers or as like a Dan Aykroyd, a Bill Murray, or even like a Bill Hader and a Kristen Wiig, you know, 10 or 12, 10 or 10 or 15 years ago, 
is just doesn't seem possible for this cast as much as like Kate McKinnon was almost there. And I feel like now she, she kind of isn't like, it's not actually happening yeah. for her. And so the show feels dead on arrival with a lot of people who feel like they almost don't want to be there anymore. And I yeah, wonder I if that has to do with like comedy in Hollywood and like the actual outlets and um, possibilities for comedians in the industry is much more limited than it than it than it was 15 or 20 years ago. Whether they're conscious of this, you know, or or, or not in terms of their impulses and, and their their create or their creative impulses. Yeah, I mean, I'm a few. I'm of a few minds about that. I think that it, it's very possible that one of the reasons that a lot of cast members are struggling to kind of make the next jump is just kind of what everybody is going through in the industry right now. That that no studio seems to want to fund anything that doesn't guarantee them a box office hit in China, Russia, Brazil, uh, and Japan. As well as the United States, and comedy, and it's comedy is difficult to translate overseas. Um, yeah. And 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 yeah. if we if we kind of narrow our focus, it, it's possible to say that a lot of these folks have had some kind of success. You know, um, Kristen Wiig, I mean, was nominated for an Oscar a decade ago, and I don't know yeah. if people have seen Barb and Mar go to Vista Del Mar, but that seems to be doing well. For of course, fantastic. Whatever that happens. means, and and of course. Bill Hader has a hit with Barry on HBO, and um, but Ricky's right; these are people who left the show a decade. Yeah, I would say that Bill and Kristen yeah. are the last. Right, and I think that yeah. that's that's the next point. I mean, I, like you don't see, you keep seeing because this is as I understand it. Like when you get hired as a cast member, you sign a seven-year deal, and you can get fired in that time. Um, and but it's very rare that like you're able to get out of it early if Lauren doesn't want you to go. Um, but it seems like a lot of people are just like writing out their seven year deals and sometimes even re-upping like AD Bryant has a show uh, on Hulu. That is, I mean, yeah, shrill, it's, it's, right? it's nominally successful. I mean, however you can measure that, but I mean, she was on the show forever. Um, same thing with Keenan Thompson. Like, People, yeah, maybe well, Keenan's a special case. Keenan's well, sure, a special but case, but my like, but my point know. is like I think maybe Ricky is onto something that like because maybe your best hope is three seasons of a small little streaming comedy. If that's your ceiling, then why would you leave the steady work at Saturday Night Live? And then because it's Saturday Night Live, you start grinding the gear gears. You start feeling a little repetitive. You might not feel as motivated. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm just, I'm speculating. I'm spitballing. I don't know if any of this is going to land in, in the main. What I would also <laughs> say is that like Saturday night live is never as good as you remember it because well, I agree. With that. I it's, 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 yeah. I mean, it's every episode is 60 minutes of sketch comedy that had been written in the middle of the night, three days before. So right. exactly. it, it, it's always, you know, like going back and watching full episodes of the stuff from the seventies, there's a lot of dead air in those episodes. Um, and the stuff that lingers is the stuff that we just kind of assume was always the show. So that's just that's just an aside. Um, so whether or not it, it's the worst it's ever been now, I'm not sure. But but yeah, I think, Ricky, maybe you're onto something. Like if, 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 if shrill is your ceiling, then why would you leave Saturday Night Live? 
the show is trying to be a very, very specific kind of thing that appeals to like all Americans all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think it has de-emphasized all resistance, you know, recurring characters and like the kinds of things that where you can, can turn you into a star, you know, everything's yeah. just like a kind of a weird commercial parody. So uh, we have three questions that we ask uh, at the end of the episode. And um, the first is, what was your favorite part? I've already said my favorite part, which was Dan Aykroyd jam session with Digital Underground. Um, Evan, what's your favorite part of the movie? If you have one. Uh, 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 Demi Moore's look, just the outfits yeah. and the hair. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, she's, she rules, man. She just absolutely rules. Chris, what was your favorite part of the movie? Yeah, well, Ricky, I hate to like I, I it's in my notes right here like yeah, fucking Tupac being in this movie. Like that's the best part of the movie by 100 100 million miles is watching a young Tupac Shakur sing the hook and like react to the crazy judge and dance around and like try to, you know, he's acting really hard and he's performing as a singer and it's just like it's it just being in 2021 and watching t- and knowing this is Tupac Shakur's first appearance on camera. And you're like, this is completely wild. He's a star, so man. Much more than this movie deserves. Yeah. Would you also say that that is your most nineties part of the movie, Chris? No, for me, it, what what's so we've been talking a lot about how this movie has all these crazy practical effects. It's got all these crazy creature makeup stuff. Um, and it has this kind of weird horror comedy tone. So I think a a big thing in the nineties was this kind of thing, but like done with different, different kind of like science fiction or sort of a more cartoony, like prehistoric thing. Like I'm, I'm thinking of uh, the Mario brothers movie, Mm. Theodore Rex, where Whoopi Goldberg has a partner who's a dinosaur in this world where there's dinosaurs, even Hudson Hawk. I mean, even the show dinosaurs, like this is all for some reason it was like advancements in latex technology or something. I don't know, but this was a really big thing in the nineties. They kept trying over and over again. And like 99% of these things were complete disasters, but this was like, they were taking big swings in this area in the early 1990s. That's true. Like this sort of the, 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 the big sort of studio set piece comedy. Well, and it, with these weird, like, like cartoony, but real effects where it's like talking dinosaurs or it's like the Flintstones house and the Flintstones car. And it's made out of whatever crazy, you know, polystyrene it's made out of or whatever. And like Theodore Rex with the walking and talking dinosaurs. It's like, (laughs) for some reason people were into this, this creature stuff and this cartoons and real world stuff. I think you bring up a good point, which is the limitations of comedy, which is that like why comedy has kind of died in the studio world, which is that like, you can only take it, so far in terms of how big it can be, how big the stories surround yeah, it can right. be. And like mm-hmm. the 90s was a period of time where it was like, let's involve sci-fi, let's involve horror, let's involve all of these things to make like our comedy like m- bigger budget and and we can make um, amusement park rides out of it. And the extension of that that you saw in the 2000s was bringing back the buddy action comedy of the 80s and amping those up even more, right? And now there's yeah. just no comedy the only comedy that you really get on a studio level is the quips in a marvel movie right the kind of like um you know uh, yeah thor ragnarok is the biggest comedy movie of the last 10 years i mean it is i hate i hate to say that because i didn't i don't particularly like that movie but it 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 is you know the best jokes that you're gonna get out of studio movies these days are like oh don't make hulk mad he he gets he gets real mad (laughs) that's it that's all you get. Um, 
Evan, what was the most, um, most 90s part of this movie for you? Oh, geez. I actually think, like, Chevy Chase's suits. <laughs> I know I'm focusing on couture, yes. but that is such a specific 90s cut for a men's suit. <laughs> yeah. I did think he looked very convincingly like a 1991 Wall Street guy. Yeah, yeah, some Wall Street douchebag. I mean, yeah, the silk, the silk ties, the way it's the particular, like, like the low cut double breasting, like everything was starting to get a little bit. Uh, there was less flair than when it was in the eighties. It's a little bit boxier, but it's still loose. It's not the slim cuts that we get much, much later in like in the two thousands. Yeah. It's perfect. It's a perfect nineties look. And maybe this is too easy, but I think I used it for ghost, but I don't know. I just think it's Demi Moore. Like the nineties were Demi <laughs> yeah. Moore. Right. You know, yeah. she was in movies in the 80s and in the aughts, but she really fucking owned the 90s. And that this is the ty- a type of hot person. Like, it's completely unique to Demi Moore, yes. basically, you know? Um, but, like, you know, with G.I. Jane and with striptease. Um, disclosure. Strip- disclosure. She was... Indecent Proposal. Indecent yeah. Proposal. She was, like, the go-to... 90s movie star and um it's crazy how much she like it it didn't it didn't really carry over that well because in the 90s she was really the most talked i i remember her as a child hearing my parents talk about her all the time like well that that cover the magazine cover of her where she's topless and she's pregnant oh my god to me more exactly she seemed like to me the most talked about movie star when i was a child I I would yes, probably 100%. put Julia Roberts above her if we're talking about the '90s in terms of That's true. reach, you know. Um, yeah. But she's, I mean, she's she's in the mix without a doubt. I mean, like I remember, I've I have seen neither striptease nor GI Jane, but I remember the striptease press tour so vividly because she had already yeah. shaved her head for GI Jane. Um, and I believe she like did a strip tease for Barbara Walters on camera. Like those, those, that was a, that was a big moment. I will say. Yes. And she had to keep talking about how she's like, I, I, I studied real strippers. Right. You know? Right. Not, not to, and I do not mean this pejoratively, although I'm sure they would have meant it that way in the nineties. Julia Roberts was America's sweetheart. Demi Moore was America's slut. Mm. <laughs> oh my god! All right, I don't mean it, and I mean I don't necessarily. But that's how I she just was watched the Britney documentary, Ricky. How could you talk like that? <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I am sorry. I, but like that's how she was talked about because of striptease and because she was of, sexual. She was sexual. She was sexual. You know, exposing herself. She had done sex scenes before. Julia Roberts hadn't. You know, I don't think Julia Roberts has ever really done a sex scene, has she? I mean, even Ghost, people... I mean, I was actually really surprised because I hadn't watched that movie at all until we did it for the show. And, like, I always was under the impression she was naked in Ghost from the way people talked about that sex scene. Like, it was this crazy sex scene. She's not even naked in it. You were really let down that she wasn't naked. I know. I I talk about it a lot on the episode. I think I did. Like, I think the episode opened and closed with you being like, she's not even naked. She's not even naked. But do you know what I mean? But this is just to get what you guys are both talking about. Like the way people talk about her and the things that she does and the sex scene, like, oh, this crazy scene and ghost. Oh, it's so sexy. (laughs) And then she doesn't even get her tits out. Like what? You know, (laughs) 
Um, so, uh, Chris, I'm gonna let you. I'm gonna let you handle the next question. Oh man. Um, <laughs> well, so it's been 30 years since this movie, Evan. Like, what do you think? Like, we've all grown out of since this movie came out. This the very conversation. The very conversation we just had. <laughs> that's what we've grown yeah. out of yeah that um, is true. yeah some of us some of us yeah i mean i think that <laughs> uh we're, we're we're much more we're much more sensitive also to the like the demeaning depiction of the rural populace of the united yes, states yeah and you know what i'm not even sure if i believe that because hillbilly elegy exists so I might have to walk that one back. I think it's a reminder. Which do you think is less sensitive about rural Americans? Well, that's an interesting <laughs> nothing but trouble or hillbilly elegy. Yeah, yeah. I think I think nothing but trouble might be more sensitive. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> because the people who made hillbilly elegy would argue that they are being sent. They think they were being sensitive. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. That 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 might be. That might be the difference, but you know, like liberal Hollywood has always attempted to try and like do the right thing while being incredibly condescending to whatever population. I mean, it's, it's a reminder of just also how far we haven't come. This, this could be a movie that Cinestate made now, you know, like they, oh, we want to branch out into comedy, but we want to be as like, like disgusting and as risque as possible. You think so? (laughs) I I mean, I want to, I want to roll with you. But um, the last Cinestate movie that I saw was uh, Run, Hide, Fight. And um, Oh, is that the Ben Shapiro movie? Yeah, that's the movie that they lost the rights to, or they sold the, the distribution rights to, to the Daily Wire to distribute. Right, um, right. And, uh, I mean, look, I like the S. Craig Zoller movies. Um, I like them yeah, a lot, actually. They're, they're, I, th- I think they're very interesting, yeah. And I don't actually agree. I mean, I think they can be trollish at times, but I also think that they are a um, more than anyone gives them credit for, but not entirely. They are like an honest depiction of, or like an honest iteration in the crime genre. Right. Um, in terms of ideology of the characters and the the sort of like complex identities that are butting up against each other. At the same time, he is definitely culturally trolling often within those within with within those movies but yeah. run high fight is just absolute garbage and it shows a degradation in terms of like the ideas and spirit of of that company probably yeah. as they were getting you know plagued by sex sex scandals yeah now maybe maybe that's maybe that's too big of a swing to say that this would be something that they would make but like i just you know you never want to um you never want to give the moment in which you live too much credit for having made progress, you know? Yeah, I, yeah fair. And right. Not just because of the cultural aspect of the movie. I just don't see, I can't see this movie existing outside of like the period of 1990 to 1995. Absolutely like, true. For this all movie? The no we, way. For all the reasons that we've talked about, like no one would throw that kind of money uh, toward a person like Dan Aykroyd to make a movie like this. You're right. There's there's no chance they'd want they'd make it they'd make it a streaming yeah. series on Crackle instead. So for me, the thing we've grown out of it's like it's kind of what you were saying, Evan. But it, this just this idea that that not just the movie has this point of view, but that it automatically assumes the viewer will be on 
forward with this point of view, right. which is like, oh, you know how like poor people who don't live in cities are like fucking crazy monsters. <laughs> like, right. like, like, like you get that, right? Like, so here's a movie about that, you know, like, you know how you're afraid every time you leave Manhattan because you don't know what these poor people are going to do to you. I think, um, I think it's generous to say this movie has a point of view. <laughs> Cause like often throughout the first hour of the movie, I was searching for whose point of view the movie was from. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, what about you, Ricky? What's something you feel like we've grown out of? Um, I think on, honestly, it's very, it's, it's, uh, there's, I mean, the entire movie, everything, literally every. I mean, where do we fucking start, right? <laughs> you know, every second, every millisecond, every molecule, every decision feels rooted in the problems of the movie industry in 1990 and 1991. <laughs> like right. every single. But if I had to stick to one thing, it would be um, the roller coaster. <laughs> yes, I don't know. Yes. Like, no one gives a shit about roller coasters anymore. Like they hey, just speak don't. for yourself, sir. <laughs> I mean, I like take take me to a Six Flags any day of the week. I'm down. But in terms of depicting them, no one really cares or depicts them outside of like a Final Destination movie. If like ten year, twelve years later which is the early aughts, which I kind of consider the early aughts to in the same way that I consider the early nineties to be part of the eighties. I consider the early yeah. aughts to be, to, to be kind of like sort of like the, the culmination of the nineties. Yeah. Um, right. And in that you get the roller coaster in like a final destination final destination three, I think. And you get a roller coaster in um, fear my favorite roller coaster scene. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and well, I think there's something that feels specifically 30 years ago, 90s, 80s, like about, you know, people on roller coasters and that being like crazy and fun. Yeah, like is it, it's just supposed to like automatically amp things up so crazy that it's a roller coaster that fucking kills you, man. And you're watching it like they're on a roller coaster? You're like what? He built a roller coaster next to his house and <laughs> goes to this weird machine. Who built well, this roller coaster. <laughs> I think to, to 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 jump back to jump on that, like we're um, something that we've grown out of that's not a positive thing is that none of these sets and none of these effects would exist in a physically tangible, practical form in a movie. Now, all of that would be com- oh, no all way. of that would be computer generated. Or just non-existent because none of right. it is actually, you know, we talked about this uh, with Silence of the Lambs and I'm not comparing these two really at all. Although I think I did that earlier. Um, <laughs> the idea that like there's all these plot strands in Silence of the Lambs that you can feel a modern or contemporary executive being kind of like, what's that doing here? Get it out of here. Get back to the murders. Right. right. Which are actual the things that become the heart of the movie that make everything so emotional whereas in this it's only tangent tangents there's nothing essential to the plot there is no plot so there was no executive being kind of like hey rein this in look for this try to find out what the movie's about so everything that's in the movie is like i don't think you would see it in any movie at all now because none of it is essential to a plot <laughs> Cool, because there is no plot to move forward. What is the fucking plot? You know, 
Like the plot is like they're stopping an evil development in the Poconos that's going to be built on garbage. <laughs> that's and then and and then they get kidnapped and they have to escape. Except that it doesn't. I'm doing it too much justice to describe it that clearly and concisely. Yes, because often it doesn't feel like they have to escape. It just feels like they're there. Yeah, like uh, there was a certain point where they like started trying to escape, and I was like. Well, that does seem kind of rude. I mean, they're just like having dinner with these people. Why are they like throwing things at them and trying to jump out the window? You know, characters, as you just said, they do escape. They jump out the window, they run away. And then they, and then John Candy's like, well, actually I'm going to kill you. And they're like, no, please don't. We'll give you money. He goes, okay, that's it. (laughs) Yes. A good microcosm for how many of this, how so many of the scenes go in the movie where it's like stakes. And then all of a sudden someone goes, no. And they go, no stakes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> although i do like that they that, that that is part of the ending of the movie is that the three of them just really did go back to brazil and like everything's fine and they're just like living together and john candy's having sex with the one brazilian woman and they're rich and they're just having a great time together i was like i somehow didn't expect that to, the movie to revisit any of that stuff you know right it's like the one narrative thread that it actually tied well yeah, like they were like, oh, people are going to be wondering what happened with these characters. And you're like, no, nobody's, nobody's wondering. Yeah, they're very I think, important. I think, I, think I, I, I mistook what you were saying, Evan, in terms of like the, the practical effects and how that would never happen. But I mistook it because it, I just don't think that you would ever get anything, any ideas or any set pieces like this in, 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 in a modern movie because they couldn't be done with CGI. Like you couldn't, I don't think you could do the roller coaster or you could do the makeup effects or anything like that with, with yeah, CGI. True. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So you wouldn't even write it. You would instead write like, I don't know, they get taken in by a group of superheroes who have horrible conversations about themselves. They're like, you know, their jokes about their superpowers and bad conversations about the fate of the world. And then we see CGI stuff of people flying and cities being burnt up. That's it. <laughs> Yeah, right. But every actual scene is just like at a dinner table in in a nice apartment. Right. You know? And then you and then you find out that the Ackroyd baby is the chosen one. <laughs> I would actually that would be great. I would love if like the two those two babies turned out to be superheroes the whole movie. That would be like yeah. blank man but or something. Right. I don't know right. That would be like blank man. <laughs> um uh so guys I mean, we've surpassed, I think about, Yeah. I mean, I'm going to edit this down, but as of right now, before editing, we're about 20, 25 minutes past how long this movie was. I love I think it. This is at this point, the longest episode we have ever recorded. <laughs> I, I want, too. I want that. I want that for myself. I want to put that on my resume. Yeah. I mean, if, I think, oh my God. if there's, if there's anything to take away from this movie, it's that sometimes a colossal failure and 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 studio nightmare and sort of like historical box office disaster is just that and is not redeemable because i do feel like we cinephiles live in a time where yes. we like to try to redeem all of these you know, oh, you may think this was a disaster, but that's because you've been programmed by the media to like not appreciate the vision of these people. Right. Oh, you think because it's a disaster because it didn't make all its money back in the first weekend? <laughs> How capitalist of you. Actually, this movie was way ahead of its time. And it's like, 
Mm, no. No, so, this movie's just bad. Sometimes they're just fucking terrible. It was just, I mean, it was, like you said, Ricky, everything wrong with the movie industry is why this movie existed in the first place. Like, it sh- shouldn't have happened. It was just a bunch of, like, misguided white male confidence yeah. and, like, backslapping and, like, just believing in someone's worth because they seemed like a nice guy or something, you know? Cocaine. Absolute cocaine. Cocaine, yeah. Cocaine, just cocaine. There's no uh, but, before, but, but before we go, I am opening up um, everybody's favorite website, twitter.com, to read... Uh, happy 30th anniversary to one of the most unloved, genuinely strange, audacious attempts to merge horror and comedy, Dan Aykroyd's Nothing But Trouble. That's from at the Pink Smoke, 11,500 followers. Um, let's see, Jill Blake, who has bylines at the Crooked Marquee. Uh, best friend, uh, thank you for reminding me that today is the 30th anniversary of the masterpiece, Nothing But Trouble. So these people are out there. People will defend this movie. This is fucking wild. Can I, this is fucking wild. I really, everybody's entitled to your opinion, to their opinion. <laughs> but, but fuck you. Um, <laughs> if you want to defend Ishtar, fine. Ishtar's got a phenomenal first 30 minutes that. Ishtar is way better than this movie, like an insane amount better than this movie. Like, Ishtar has some a lot of problems, but the first 30 minutes rock. And so, like, you know, go, you know, defend that movie. You want to defend, I don't know, Spielberg's 1941. I'm sure it's possible. He's a great director. And I'm sure there are things in there that you can watch that, that, that work. Um, you know, name, a name another box office poison disaster. And I'm maybe we sure. can find something to defend in there, but this is yeah. just not one of them. This is, on the face, everything about it is like doesn't work and is bad. It and it's bad because it's not thought through. There's no decisions, there's no big decisions here that you're like, wow, that just didn't work because it was too big of a dis- too big of a swing at the time. It's like that didn't work because you didn't think about this, you didn't try hard enough. Like, as you were creating this, you didn't know why or what way you wanted to make people feel and it shows you know well i think that i think it's this thing of at least this is this is my reaction and i think that's what we were kind of like getting at throughout the whole episode is that you can see how this could have been great if somebody else had reworked the script and directed the damn thing you can see what the potential for this material was and and you you're desperately trying to squint and find that redeemable angle and none of us can and i think that's what i think is ultimately so this this movie frustrates me and gets my blood up more than your average bad movie for that reason you should just call it man i don't think i could even say anything else i don't think i don't have anything else to say about anything let alone about this movie before we go evan um uh, why don't you tell people how they can uh, check out your work? I know you're always up to something new and you're, you're, you're doing stuff all the time. Yeah, I've got, I've got bylines at decider. Um, and uh, I, I, you can find me on Twitter at Evan Davis sports. Cause I'm a sports television broadcaster in my real life. Um, yeah. And uh, that's, that's it. I mean, I, I, I wish everybody uh, to get vaccinated very soon.
And I will say, uh, in terms of the decider bylines, Evan wrote like a really great piece about uh, Mank that everybody should check out if you were as frustrated uh, by that movie as uh, as I was. What a terrible thing to have happen to all three of us. This is <laughs> this is gonna bind us forever. Oh my God, we share this drama forever. Yeah.